Our text is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse number 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. I'm grateful that Dave spoke last week. Um, And although it was the third blueprint or in the series, the third in the series, was connected, at least as I listened to it, in a number of ways to what we saw in examining the Ninth Commandment. David mentioned gaslighting, Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year in 2022, the practice of grossly misleading someone. And he then ended his sermon with a mic drop, as he is wont to do. My question, as individuals or as a congregation or as a group of people, When people step inside, what do they find behind the storefront? His sermon and other factors led me to return to the Ninth Commandment, when it in fact would have made sense to do the Tenth Commandment today and finish it, and then next Sunday's Christmas, and then the Sunday after will be in a new year. Um, But hearing Dave's sermon... Then after my sermon on the Ninth Commandment, like, oh, I didn't mention this. There are other things I should have said. But a big factor was uh, one of the books I took with me on vacation. I took books with me on vacation to read. And it dealt with another word of the year. Uh, The Oxford Dictionary proclaimed the word of the year in 2016. And I found it interesting because it beat out other words possible, like alt-right, Latinx, woke. I mean, these are now pretty much part of our vocabulary. Um, And so what was that word that was word of the year in 2016? The word was post-truth. It's defined as relating or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. I found this amazing in a number of ways because I'd never heard of post-truth. And yet here it was the word of the year where other words that were not selected as word of the year, I'm much more familiar with. Um, But then as I read the book and as I considered it, it explains a lot of what's going on in the world today, in which people make ludicrous assertions, and if we fail to recognize the assertions as true, we are then called guilty of hate speech. I don't know if you, I'll just give one example. I don't know if you followed this. This happened in the last week where a filmmaker and actress in Norway, uh, she is a lesbian, and she had posted something on Facebook. She spoke out against another Norwegian, an activist um, who is a transgender woman who calls herself a lesbian mother. Um, This woman spoke of this transgender person. It is impossible 
for men to become a lesbian as it is for men to become pregnant. Men are men regardless of their sexual fetishes. That's what she put on Facebook. She now faces three years in prison for having said that. What struck me was people are outraged that she said men who consider themselves women cannot be lesbians. I think men can't get pregnant is a much more significant issue. How did we get to this place in our world today? Well, post-truth is actually a third of three posts that have marked the 20th and now the 21st century. The first is postmodernism. Let me give a little background. The question is asked, what is postmodernism? And as one author puts it, pretty much everyone admits it is impossible to define postmodernism. But several things do stand out. First of all, the first thesis of postmodernism is there is no such thing as objective truth. That is to say, there's this radical skepticism about the idea of truth. One writer wrote, once we realize that the idea of an absolute objective truth is a philosophical hoax, the only alternative is a position called perspectivism. The the idea that there's no one objective way the world is, only perspectives on what the world is like. So there's no truth. There's no one way to see things. It's just your own perspective. The second thesis is that any claim of truth is nothing more than a reflection of the political ideology of the person who's making that claim. So when you say this is true, then it's like, well, no, no, that's just your political view on things, that there actually is no such thing as objective truth. Another writer writer noted, this means that all knowledge claims are really just an assertion of authority. They are a bullying tactic used by the powerful to force those who are weaker to accept their ideological views. Since there is no such thing as truth, in quotes, anyone who claims to know, in quotes, something is really just trying to oppress us, not educate us. So there's no such thing as truth. And if you say that there is such a thing as truth, then you're just being a bully. Um, It is interesting that postmodernism, at least in the academy and the universities, began as a form of literary criticism, but it has gone from the social sciences even into the hard sciences. The second post is post-human. This is a concept that a person or entity that exists is in a state beyond being human. You're beyond human. You're post-human. Um, And the concept aims at addressing a variety of questions, including ethics, justice, language, social systems, and more. The post-human is a speculative being that represents or seeks to reconceive the human. You know what you think is human is not really human, and that's part of postmodernism. There's no such thing as a human being as such. It's a fairly new idea. I mean, the first time I think we began to hear about this was in 2002 uh, in an article. And uh, since then, we begin to hear it more and more. But it has its roots in postmodernism that there's no such thing as objective truth. 
Which is why, by the way, a person who is biologically a male can say, no, no, I'm a woman. And if we do not accept that, then we are, in fact, guilty of being bullies or of hate speech. The third post is post-truth, the word of the year in 2016. Okay. Objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We find that we have arrived, we now live in the post-truth era, in which alternative facts, in quotes, okay, which in fact may not be facts at all, but alternative facts replace actual facts, and feelings have more weight than evidence. How you feel is more important. I, f I, I feel like uh, I'm not who I am, and so you must, uh, you must address me in that way. The selective choice of facts or use of facts is you are for, to prop up your position, to support your position. And there are facts that you don't like, then you just completely ignore them. Okay. The result, obviously, is confusion. One author asserts, if someone maintains that the truth does not matter, and, or that there is no such thing as truth, I am not sure that there's much we can say to them. How can you have a conversation with someone who, in fact, says there's no such thing as truth? The reality is that post-truth is not so much that truth doesn't exist, though it does hold that position, but um, that the facts are subordinate to our political position. It all becomes about politics. And if you look at the last 10 years, this has become truly evident that everything boils down to a political position. And how did we get to this place? Well, one author says that postmodernism is the godfather of post-truth. Not everyone has bought into this. One writer in critiquing it says, I think what postmodernists did was truly evil. They are responsible for the intellectual fad that finds it, or that made it respectable, to be cynical about the truth and facts. You'd have people going around saying, well, you're part of that crowd that still believes in facts. You still believe in truth. It's interesting, April 3rd, 2017, the cover story for Time magazine was, Is Truth Dead? Well, in April of 1966, April the 8th, the cover story was, Is God Dead? And if one asserts that God is dead, are we surprised that people would say that truth then is dead? It's not about reality. It's about how we react to reality. It's all about us. The book that I read while I was on vacation uh, ends with this. The tr truth still matters as it always has. Whether we realize this in time is up to us. How does this relate to the Ninth Commandment? I think it's self-evident, but let's explore it anyway in light of our previous study on this commandment. The first question that we ask, or the first thing we considered the last time we looked at this commandment is, why is this even in the Ten Commandments? Why is there a commandment uh, that we are not to bear false witness or false testimony against our neighbors? 
Well, the reality is God has made us, and he has made us in his image, and he has created us with tongues that we might speak. He gave us the gift of speech so that we can communicate with each other. And the purpose of this communication is for mutual support, for the common good. We're to be social creatures. We are to work together. We're not just to be these these individuals off by ourselves. We are to work together for common good. It requires that we speak to one another and that we speak truthfully. The reality is we are broken, we are fallen, we are sinners, and lies are much more natural to us than the truth. And so there has to be a commandment to tell us to speak the truth. Mark Twain, by the way, said, A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Um, Lying comes so much more naturally to us than speaking the truth. And so the commandment is, speak the truth. Do not bear false witness or give false testimony against your neighbor, but speak the truth. And speaking the truth is necessary for a society to continue and to flourish. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I would say that our society is not flourishing, that our society, in fact, may not continue much longer if we live in a world in which, well, it's post-truth, that there's no such thing as truth. This commandment is in the negative, but if we were to put it in the positive, it would be this, Speak the truth. I mentioned when I last spoke about this that Jordan Peterson has a book entitled 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, interestingly enough. And rule number eight is tell the truth or at least don't lie. The ninth commandment tells us to speak the truth. Truth is rooted in the nature of God. He is truth. He is truthful. I mentioned that the word truth is found at least 130 times in the Bible, 43 times in the Old Testament, but 87, uh, double in the New Testament, and 21 of those times are found in the the Gospel of John. And what we find in this is that the truth isn't simply a matter of facts. It is that. There is such a thing as objective truth, but it is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It is rooted in God as the one who is truth. God, the infinite personal God, is true, he is truth, and he is truthful. In the Gospel of John, we hear the following. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of truth, uh, full of grace and truth. Still in John 1, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We are told that the truth will set us free. And we hear Jesus saying in the last night before his death, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he spoke of sending the counselor, the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is the truth. 
The Spirit is a Spirit of truth who comes from the Father and from the Son. It's a Trinitarian state, uh, statement on the nature of truth. God is truth. So being made in the image of this God who is truth, we are in fact to speak the truth. We are to testify to the truth as we speak. When Jesus stood before Pilate, um, Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Truth is a witness. That to which we witness is Christ. He is the truth. When we speak the truth, this is actually rooted in the person of Jesus, whether we realize it or not. There should be a recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done. In Colossians 1, we read the following. He, that is the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have the fullness, his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The reality is whenever we speak truth, it is because God is true. We're made in his image. And he sent his son, who is the truth. Third thing, and I mentioned this in the other sermon, is that the focus seems to be in this commandment on our neighbors, that we are not to give false testimony against our neighbors. Our relationship with our fellow man is really important. And I mentioned the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan saw a stranger, a Jew, who had been ambushed, he, had, he was in need, he was without a place, he was alone. Two other individuals, religious individuals, a Levite and a priest, had the same opportunity to help this man, and they did not. They had things more important to do, spiritual tasks or sacred tasks, but they refused to help their neighbor. And the Samaritan did something that was, first of all, countercultural. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had nothing to do with each other. That he should show kindness and hospitality to a Jew was unthinkable. Secondly, it involved risk. This man had been ambushed by bandits. Who's to say that they weren't still sticking around and might ambush him as he's helping this man? That might be, by the way, why the Levite and the priest didn't help, because they were afraid they might get jumped as well. And thirdly, it involved cost, ongoing cost. He put the man on his donkey, he bound his wounds, and then he took him to an inn and told the man, listen, here are two denarius, that's two days' wages, uh, and if, there's, if it costs more than that, then I, I will come back and pay you later. He did this for a stranger, 
I would suggest to you that speaking the truth can have the same characteristics as what, as what the Samaritan did. It's countercultural. If we live in a post-truth era and we speak the truth, well, that's counter to the culture. Secondly, it can involve risk. We can be called bullies, be seen guilty of hate speech, and it can involve cost. I mentioned the, the quote from uh, Mark Twain that a lie can go halfway around the world before the truth puts on its shoes. Well, Satan is the father of lies, and his language is that of lies, and we are fallen, and oftentimes it is our language. Jesus said, why is my language not clear to you? Jesus is speaking the truth, and the people can't understand it. Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, sixth commandment, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A quote that I mentioned when I last looked at this, there is no sin more precious to the devil than the lie. For the devil knows that we never lie more readily than when we do so in the name of love that is undisciplined in the truth of Christ's cross and resurrection. This is a lie for a good purpose. Yeah, it's still a lie. This is the world in which we live. And it seems that it is more blatant than it's ever been before. Truth is rejected and lies are accepted in its place. It is a post-truth world. So what are we as God's people to do? Let me suggest several things. First of all, we need to recognize the nature of the conflict. You might say, well, what conflict? Well, if people don't believe in objective truth, and we do because we accept God's revelation, well, then there will be conflict. They say there's no such thing as truth. We affirm that there is such a thing as truth. Well, somebody's got to be wrong. And as I said, we will be seen as bullies. How dare you? How dare you say that there is such a thing as truth? How do we communicate the truth to people who don't believe in such a thing? As I mentioned earlier, one writer said, you know, if people, in fact, say there's no such thing as truth, I'm not sure that there's much that we can say to them. Well, I would say that there is. We must, in fact, insist that there is such a thing as truth. By the way, just a side note. You know, people can say that there's no such thing as objective truth, but that's not, that's not true. Because, let me give you some example. If you say to someone, what happens if you're in a five-story building and you fall out or you jump out of the window down to the ground below? You will be hurt, right? Yeah, that, I mean, I don't think anyone would deny that. So then that's an objective truth. Or if you eat something that's poisonous, there will be consequences. The famous composer, uh, John Cage, uh, developed a form of music that was just random chance. He would use the Yijing, uh, 
you know, method of, and that's how he determined the notes. So it was indeterminate music, is what it was called. Um, and he was applauded, it's very avant-garde. It's just random chance. Well, John Cage on the side was also sort of an expert on mushrooms, um, an amateur expert. And you know what? He never ate a poisonous mushroom because he knew <laughs> this is poison. It's not a question of chance. This is poisonous. This is not. I will eat this. I will not eat that. So people, in fact, do believe in objective truth. For all their protestations, they do. I would argue that people reject objective truth when it goes counter to what they think or they feel or they want. So how do we speak to such people? Well, we are to love our neighbor by speaking the truth in love. We need to recognize that it is countercultural. It can involve risk, alienation. People may not want to speak to us anymore. We may lose friends over this. And in fact, it could involve cost or ongoing cost. But if we love our neighbor, we have to speak the truth. We have to. We can't bear false witness against them. We must tell the truth. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, and in a different, slightly different context, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. We are to speak the truth in love. In many debates, it seems, many um, conflicts, oftentimes Christians who have the truth don't speak in love and can't simply say, I have the objective facts on my side, I have the truth on my side, but we are to speak it in love. Later in, in Ephesians 4, therefore each of you must put off falsehood, okay, don't break the ninth commandment, and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We are to be people of the truth. We are to speak the truth. We are to speak truthfully to our neighbors. The third thing I would say that we should do is we are to practice speaking the truth and speaking truthfully when we gather to worship. It's one of the things we do or we should do when we gather to worship. We affirm the truth of God's revelation. We have reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We sing. We sing God's praises. We hear the word read and preached. We, re, uh, we affirm the reality of truth. And in our conversations, either when we speak of prayer requests or after the service or before, we are to speak truthfully. And when we do that here and we develop the practice here, it helps us as we then go out into the world, which is a post-truth world, to be people who speak truthfully. The fourth thing is I think we need to recognize the nature of truth. And we need to be careful not to fall into sort of the realm of post-truth. Um, 
the definition that is given is relating or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are, a lot, uh, are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In the past, and perhaps <clears throat> even in the present, the Christian faith has be, been presented in terms of faith, I put in quotes, that is, just believe, with a strong emotional aspect to the presentation. Faith is to be based in the truth. It's not blind faith. Okay? And we must take care not to use emotional appeals to sway people's uh, views to our own. Our emotions are not to control us, neither are they to rule us. And I can just say from my experience uh, in the past, uh, the tradition that I came out of, there's a very strong emotional appeal in presenting the gospel. And oftentimes when questioned, people would say, no, just believe. Well, that's very much in the post-truth realm. Have you noticed in the past few years, let's say the last five years, maybe 10, in a post-truth world, there's a lot of anger, there's hysteria, there's weeping, there's not a rational conversation to be had oftentimes because people just respond emotionally. They don't, uh, they don't respond with facts or with argumentation. There's no discussion. There's just this sort of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth if you don't accept what they say is true. A couple more things. First of all, I would say we need to recognize that we are not the only ones who speak truthfully. Otherwise, we might sort of you know, get puffed up and say, we're the people of the truth. We speak truthfully. I don't know about the rest of you people out there. There are people out there, people who are not believers, who do speak truthfully. In a quote that is attributed, it was in this book, and I looked it up and apparently has since been denied, but it's attributed to George Orwell, who wrote 1984 and Animal Farm. In times of universal deceit, Telling the truth will be a revolutionary act. And we as God's people will in fact be engaged in revolutionary acts when we speak the truth. But we're not the only ones. Now they do not accept the truth that we find in scripture. But at least we can have a conversation because they accept that there is such a thing as truth. Let's not be filled with pride or think that we and we alone speak truthfully. But we do have the revelation of God as found in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. So, in closing, why is it such a big deal that we speak truthfully? Well, we're made in the image of God who is truth, who speaks truthfully. In Hebrews 6, we are told it is impossible for God to lie. And in John 8, Satan is the father of lies. If we are God's people, then we are to speak the truth. We are not to lie. When we lie, we misuse his name. When we give false testimony or false witness, we steal from our neighbors. We steal the reputation. We are to speak the truth. We are to live the truth. And how do we do that? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we love the Lord our God and our neighbors ourselves, we will speak truthfully. Lest we think, I mean, certainly we live in difficult times, um, unusual times, post-truth times, lying and people not speaking the truth has been with us since the Garden of Eden. I'd like to close by reading to you a psalm of David, Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your law that was given millennia ago and still speaks to us today. We live in a time of great confusion. We realize what has happened is the ninth commandment is broken left and right. People say that there is no such thing as truth, meaning that there can't be lies. We seem to live in a time when there's a tsunami of wickedness and of deceit and confusion. May we as your people remember and affirm that you are the truth. And as your people, we are to speak the truth. We are to live the truth. That even when we do not speak, people see the truth in us, in our actions. No doubt, this is a difficult time. We ask for wisdom, we ask for grace. May we not retreat into isolation, because after all, how can we speak to people who say there is no such thing as truth? but we can love our neighbors as ourselves. And even if they don't accept the truth, we can still speak the truth and live it out in our lives every day. And it is here when we gather on Sunday that we practice this. We develop this skill of speaking and living truthfully. We are grateful that you sent your son who is the truth. 
And when we speak the truth, we speak from him who is the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.